Hey everybody, how y'all doing? I'm Michael, I'm joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And we're here with an episode of Falling Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. I'm doing pretty all right myself. I It's spooky season now. Mm-hmm. The most spookiest of seasons. And I am currently drinking a Coca-Cola coffee, nice. which um, is the spookiest of all energy drinks because they somehow combine Coca-Cola and coffee and make it seem not terrible. Yeah, I that seems like dark magic if I ever saw it. It really is. It really, really is. Alex, uh, how do you how do you feel about Halloween? I like Halloween a lot. I I really like the spirit of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the darkness and all the purple and all the spookiness and mm-hmm. like all like the celebration of monsters in general. It seems like. And one thing I really like about Halloween is it allows us to remember all the classic movie monsters, your Frankensteins, your mummies and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And before we jump in here, I wanted to ask you, Alex, uh, are you familiar with like the Universal movie monsters from the Universal like monster movie series? I am. Yes. I'm not deep in there. Like, I'm trying to think of which ones I've watched. So I, I watched the... I watched the the Mummy with Brendan Fraser back when mm-hmm. I was young. That movie was the new hotness. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've ever properly seen the sequels to it. Actually, oh, you haven't seen the hot movie, The Scorpion King. I have not seen The Scorpion King. I have not seen the uh, Jade Emperor or Terracotta Warriors, whatever the one with Jet Li was. Mm. Um. I didn't even watch uh, The Mummy Returns, I believe it was, although it seemed good. Like, clips yeah. of it I saw, it seemed fun. It's perfectly fine with a very bad CGI rock Wayne Johnson <laughs> Scorpion Man. I have seen Man. that thing, yes. It's pretty, pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah, uh, the revivals of all those were pretty good, but I was actually thinking of more of the 1930s mm. and 1940s classic movies. Right. Um, the only one I've seen any of is Frankenstein. It, it's a classic. It's a really, yeah. really good one. Well, today we're going to be talking a little a bit about those. It's very specifically, we're going to be talking about my favorite of them all. A little, a little movie called Dracula. Mm. Because Alex... Mm-hmm. Dracula has a surprisingly import, a surprisingly big importance in our pop culture, uh, as far as popular popularizing the idea of vampires and yes. you know not only the horror but the allure that they possess. Mm-hmm. And Dracula, being a property that is in the public domain, has been adapted many, many times over, mm-hmm. including in my one of my favorite video game series of all time, and what we're going to be talking about today. Castlevania. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good old Castlevania. Uh, first re- first game coming out in 1986 and still receiving titles to this day up until 2019. Uh, admittedly, mobile phone titles, but don't I mean, yeah, worry about d- that. Despite the fact that Ka- or, uh, Konami doesn't make real games anymore. Despite that, yes. Castlevania is one of those titles that's part of the big three that... Uh, konami has had for a long time like a lot of japanese companies have big threes mm-hmm. nintendo has you know super mario brothers zelda and the third title kind of determ- depends on what region you know for right. here it's metroid uh for japan it's probably fire emblem it it sort of just depends and you know mm-hmm. capcom has you know mega man 
uh, Monster Hunter and Resident Evil, and you could probably substitute Mega Man out for... Well, you probably should substitute Mega Man out for Street Fighter, but my point being is that they usually have three major franchises they kind of focus around. Right. And for Konami, one of those was Castlevania, a series that has been incredibly successful for them, uh, even at times when it uh, really, really wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, have you had a whole lot of experience with Castlevania? Uh, not a ton. I have probably played four or five Castlevania games in my mm. life. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you remember which ones? Uh, so I've definitely played the first one. In fact, I played that when I was very young, too young to understand how you actually play that game. Mm. Um, I think yeah, I didn't game. understand that you could go upstairs. So I just sort of ended up hitting the wall in level one and could not progress. (laughs) Um, But I've since played it and, yeah, played more of that. Uh, Mm. Played Castlevania IV, the Super Nintendo one. Fun game. Um, So, okay, so historically speaking, I played Castlevania I when I was very young and then did not touch the series again until my senior year of high school when I picked up Castlevania Harmony of Dissonance for the Game Boy Advance. Hell of a game. Hell of a game. Got super addicted to that game. Um, Especially, so Harmony of Dissonance is basically just a straight-up spiritual successor to Symphony of the Night. Mm -hmm. uh, A game which radically altered the course of uh, the series' formula. Yeah. Having not played Symphony of the Night, Harmony was basically my Symphony of the Night. And so, yeah, I I can personally report that if you haven't played Symphony before, it's pretty much just as good. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, it's a classic for a reason. We'll definitely get into that once we get there. And then, yeah, at a certain point, I went back. I played 4. I played Symphony. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I played Order of Ecclesia, which was one of the last proper Castlevanias to come out and was a really fun game. Mm-hmm. Also very, very good, yes. Yeah, so I have a significant amount more experience with this series. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's actually probably easier for me to name the games I haven't played mm-hmm. as opposed to the ones that I have. Right. Um, so, like, the ones I haven't played uh, include actually Order of Ecclesia, oddly enough. Mm. Uh, the Nintendo 64 Castlevania games. Ah, uh, yes. And the entirety of Lords of Shadow, that that series. That, well, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, I I had a moment at some point this year where I just saw an article from I want to say GameSpot. It doesn't really matter which one, where mm-hmm. it was like how Lords of Shadow revitalized an aging series. Ah, uh, yes, I... and it was just mm, yeah, yeah. You know, Symphony of the Night, old Harmony of Dissonance, trash. Lords of Shadows, where it's at. Yeah, it's. And that hasn't aged well because the first Lords of Shadow was something that had some promise to it. And then yeah. everything else after it is like, mm-hmm. oh, no, you all did gone off the rails very yeah. quickly. Yeah, the my my understanding is that basically uh, the closest Castlevania has gotten to working in 3D is the Dark Souls series. <laughs> Dark Souls. Yeah, just with its gothic horror sort of mm-hmm. element to it is, yeah, essentially just Castlevania 3D yeah, in some ways. And it's it's kind of like winding circuitous level design that loops mm-hmm. back on itself and forces you to explore different paths. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if Castlevania was the one who actually went down that path, they probably would have gotten me to like Dark Souls-style games. Yeah, probably. Also, yeah. Dark Souls 3 has a whip. 
Oh, yes. Yes, it does. And you can imbue that whip with fire or holy. And also, Bloodborne has a level that is just Castlevania. It's just Dracula's Castle. <laughs> it complete with, like, Victorian Gothic ghosts mm. that try to stab you with rapiers. Man. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's sad. I, I now really want to play that game. Bloodborne rules. Bloodborne is, Bloodborne is cool. Bloodborne is cool. But it doesn't have an enemy in there called Fred Scare. No, sadly not. It's kind of uh, the one thing it's missing. Yeah. For Castlevania 4, still better. Yeah. So, yeah, Castlevania has been a very successful series for Konami, you know, stretching over multiple decades. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that it is a series that has, to its credit, uh, not only gotten a ton of sequels and spin-offs within it, but it has not been particularly afraid to actually alter the formula, sometimes dramatically. While the series is going to start out as incredibly hard platforming games for the Nintendo Entertainment System Super Nintendo Genesis, it is going to eventually shift itself to a more exploration-focused like RPG sort of style system. And along the way, they are going to make multiple attempts to actually modernize the game into 3D with games such as Castlevania for the Nintendo 64 or Lament of Innocence for the PlayStation 2. And of course, Lords of Shadow uh, that we will get to eventually. It's it's very interesting because I always think of Castlevania as being kind of like the Mega Man for like how Mega Man is mm. for... Um, Capcom, right. Castlevania is for Konami in yep. very, very similar ways in that they have actually somebody who's like a big champion for them behind the scenes, uh, both of which would eventually leave the company and <laughs> have their own separate Kickstarter projects. One of which would be successful. One of which will be successful, and it's going to be the crazy man who constantly walks around <laughs> with the whip. Oh, I love <laughs> it. turns Ego. out, I love Ego so much. He's great. He's great. But yeah, like unlike Mega Man, where they like made like one serious attempt to modernize and then just kind of gave up. Yeah. Konami, to their credit, is going to consistently, consistently try. And it's hard it's not hard to see why they wouldn't. I mean, Castlevania, once again, is going to be one of their most consistently successful series. And one that once they like actually do that Symphony of Nights sort of shift into a different genre entirely. Kind of probably show them that hey, well there is, there is kind of a way that we could use the series to branch out into different areas in ways that say Contra or Gradius didn't yeah. quite work. Mm-hmm. Not to say that they didn't try with those games either. So I'm super excited to talk about this game, uh, this series because once again there is a ton of yeah. games in here. Uh, but before we get into that, I should actually kind of set the rules of exactly what we're going to be talking about here. Okay. To start, uh, once again, there's at least something like 33, I think technically more, bespoke entries in this series, you know, mm-hmm. not counting ports and whatnot. Right. Uh, we're not going to talk about every one of them, uh, not only because a lot of them aren't necessarily going to be canon, uh, but also because it's just sort of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you're not going to learn about, I think it's like Ted Belmont from the Java mobile game. <laughs> Sorry, it's yeah. here. Here's a story. He defeats Dracula at the end. Wow. Congratulations. So there's that. We are going to be talking about some games, though, that aren't canon just because they're interesting mm. in the sense of like what they try to do with the story and how they try to advance things mm-hmm. uh, and also kind of represent past of like what could have been. Right. So 
that's my way of still talking about stuff like Castlevania Legends and the Nintendo 64 Castlevania games. Okay, yep. Uh, we are going to be talking about Lords of the Shadow, but that's going to be at the absolute end, because it's just, it's its own entire reboot. Right. Uh, we're also not going to be talking about the anime as well. Uh, okay. Mostly because I don't want this to be five parts. Right. Also, it, the anime is basically Castlevania 3. It is, and it, it sort of deserves its own set of episodes to kind of breathe. Right. Essentially. Yeah. So that is really the big things that we're going to be settling here. We're going to be going in mostly order by release date. I'll be pairing together certain games just to make it a little bit easier to kind of like go through this. That way we're not talking about Rondo of Blood and then all of a sudden we're talking about the weird one they said during World War One, <laughs> and then getting to the one that's the direct follow of the Rondo of Blood afterwards. You know, just little that things ma- like that. That makes sense, yeah. So yeah, before we jump into here though, I do want to set up the world of Castlevania and talk about the inspirations behind it. Mm. So to start with, we need to talk about three things. Mm-hmm. The first is that we need to talk about the source material. So the source material is mostly based upon a single novel, Dracula by Bram Stoker. Now, Bram Stoker's Dracula was a novel released on May 26th, 1897. Now, this story tells, well, the story of the titular mm. De- Dracula, an immortal being who, in a relatable series of events, is having trouble buying property in England. Now, sure. after high, yeah, you know, we've all it been. Hap- yeah, it happens. Yes. After hiring an English solicitor and driving him insane sort of on accident, he then moves to England where hijinks ensue. And by hijinks, I mean he terrorizes in small English town until he's <laughs> killed by a German vampire hunter and a Texan. Neat. Yes. Now, the novel itself draws inspiration from the story of Vladislav III, the ruler of Wallachia from 1448 to 1477 over the course of three separate reigns. Um, these reigns each being broken up by him mostly being imprisoned by various people. <laughs> now, Vladislav III of the House of Dracul uh, was kind of known as like a realistic tyrant who was like not quite out of line with rulers at the time. Mm. And what I mean by that, he was known for his military prowess. The, um, the entire House of Dracul was known that for that. And this makes sense when you realize that Wallachia is located in what's now known as present-day Romania. Mm-hmm. Romania in its little slice of Eastern Europe, is known for its fertile land and later oil, and is situated between (laughs) Austrians, Germans, Russians, Turks, (laughs) among others. Romania kind of gets kicked around a lot. Exactly. And so because of that, if you want to actually carve out any sort of nation in there and not be partitioned among multiple great powers over the course of multiple centuries, you better be really good at fighting. Mm-hmm. And Vladislav and his family were very, very good at fighting. Uh, now, this, of course, gave him a bit of a reputation, though, for being cruel. Uh, mm. He was notable for his tendency to impale his enemies on spikes. And there are salacious stories of him boiling people to death, murdering babies alongside their mothers, uh, punishing his enemies in bizarre torture methods. Uh, methods that were likely exaggerated by his enemies after his death. Uh, right. Very, which is a very, very common thing. It's a very common thing to slander mm-hmm. your enemies after death by saying they murdered babies. That's right. just, just how it is. Now, uh, his reign ended up coming to end in 1477 when he basically picked the fight of the Ottomans and lost. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, something that usually is a bad idea around this time. Yeah. Although to be fair to Vladisov, he actually had fought the Ottomans previously and had beaten them. Mm-hmm. So you can see why he decided to do it again. Yeah. Uh, he was then, of course, dismembered. Uh, his corpse basically scattered to all corners of the globe, and nobody knows where his corpse actually is nowadays. Uh, he's known as a hero of Romania, although mm-hmm. uh, most Romanians do pretty much agree that he would probably be a war criminal. Yeah, most great rulers of history would be war criminals by today's standards, I feel like. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things that I look back on all the stories about um, about Vladi Impaler, as he is known. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, it's like, you go like, man, yeah, that's some pretty messed up stuff. But, you know, it's hard, kind of weird to judge somebody 800 years ago unless right. it's something, ex- you know, especially extreme. Like, yes, of course he's going to impale his enemies on spikes and display them outside of town. Right, no one said you can't do that. And everybody's trying to murder you. Also that. You want to be like, listen, this is what's going to happen. You kind of understand it at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, how exactly Bram Stoker decided to choose Vlad the Impaler as his uh, inspiration for Dracula comes from two reasons. One, all the salacious stories that were already popular around this time. And the second is because he was bad at the Romanian language. <laughs> so once again, he's known as um, uh, Vladislav III of the House of Dracul. He looked at the word Dracul and thought it was a Romanian word for demon. Mm. This is not true. Dracul is known as dragon. He was from the House of Dragon, named uh. after a order of knights that mm. were called the Order of the Dragon. Got it. Uh, so it was a complete misinterpretation, unfortunately. Uh, fun fact up, upon this, uh, in Symphony of the Night, Alucard's starting equipment is all named after him, the Alucard shield, Alucard mail, whatnot, mm-hmm. except for his helmet, which is the dragon helmet, and mm. that's why it's called that. Interesting. Yeah. So he saw that, misinterpreted that, and said, well, hey, you know, he's a demon. Why don't I make him into a vampire? So Dracula was a very influential novel. While it's not necessarily the reason why vampires are, like, considered, like, a thing, it is something that helped make them incredibly popular, alongside other novels around this time, such as Carmilla. It is considered a classic in the gothic horror genre, and it led to many common adaptations of it. Uh, These include plays such as uh, a play that was on the West End called Dracula, as as well as other other different little theater productions. Now, Dracula's elevation of pop culture sensation, though, wouldn't occur until 1931, when Universal Pictures would produce a movie adaptation of the play called Dracula. Dracula, which stars Bela Lugosi, a Hungarian actor who was also playing him on the West End, uh, was incredibly successful and known for its then intense horror and suspense. Mm. There's a lot of very just... Puritan sort of articles written about how this was going to like ruin the youth of the day, <laughs> which is uh, classic, incredibly, incredibly good. Now it was incredibly successful. Um, a movie considered one of um, one of the greatest horror movies ever made, and it actually kickstarted Universal's uh, uh, shift into horror movies, which led to them doing things like adapting Mary Shelley's, Shelley's Frankenstein, or doing movies like The Mummy, mm. or um, uh, werewolf in london stuff like that mm-hmm. now dracula itself would end up inspiring its own separate franchise about seven movies or so with titles such as dracula's daughter 
And ending with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of the first, like, cross-promotional thing as well, because, Uh like, Dracula would show up in, like, Frankenstein movies, and the mummy would show up in, like, werewolf movies. Like, eventually, it was just kind of this whole thing, which is why, relatively recently, Universal actually tried to revive that entire thing. Uh, I think they just tried too hard. They did. (laughs) In a way that was hilarious. I, yeah. Ah, the dark universe. I love it. Never forget. Been? So Tom Cruise's The Mummy is widely credited with trying and failing to kickstart the dark universe, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. But never forget that there actually was an attempt before that, which was Dracula Untold. Yep. Yeah, they tried once and that failed. And they said, well, let's try again. <laughs> <laughs> and that also failed. Oh. Yeah. So like, you know, this did incredibly well for him. And soon after this, the the novel Dracula passed into public domain and everyone was free to make their own adaptation. And so everyone kind of did this. There was kind of a gold rush of Dracula movies for a while, uh, mostly internationally, but also here in the United States. Uh, Companies such as Hammer, for instance, produced movies such as the 1958 movie Dracula starring Christopher Lee. Uh, mm-hmm. Wes Craven would do a Dracula movie called Dracula 2000. <laughs> and even like lighter fare, such as like Hotel Transylvania, all used the Dracula IP or, well, I guess it's not really an IP anymore since it's a public domain, but you know what I mean. Shout outs to Dracula Dead and Loving It. Exactly. Dracula Dead and Loving. Yeah. Mel Brooks. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all over the place and it continues to this day. Uh, and of course, once again, this included international uh, uses of Dracula, including anime series such as Helsing, and of course, Castlevania. And with that setup, I think we should move on to our second point and see what Dracula is like in Castlevania and kind of set up the rules for mm. him. Mm-hmm. Because it's important that we set up his rules because they're going to be, well, they're not going to be consistent, but they're going right. to try to be consistent. You're right. So, Dracula in Castlevania, he is the main character. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, you would think it would be the players you're, the characters you're playing as, such as the Belmonts. No, you're wrong. It's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Dracula is not just a vampire. He is the Ur-Vampire. He is literally the Dark Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Dark Lord, by the way, is just Satan. They just don't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so Dracula's whole deal is that he has all the standard powers of a vampire that you would expect. He's able to turn into different creatures such as bats or wolves or mist or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the ability to teleport to compel people. Um, he possesses just incredible magical power, incredible strength, strength and resilience, and is essentially immortal. Mm-hmm. He is, of course, weak to all the things you would expect a vampire to be weak to. So garlic, holy water, crosses, uh, stakes to the heart, and sunlight. Right. Uh, are all incredibly deadly. Except by week two, uh, that that term is a little less powerful than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It, it's sort of like being weak to paper cuts. Yeah, he notices it. Like, if you, mm-hmm. you, you, if you stick a cross on him, he'll be like, nah. He'll, he'll oh. brush it off like a fly. Whereas if you punch him, he probably won't even notice. <laughs> he, yes. As as ably demonstrated in the anime several times. Oh, that's really good when Trevor just tried to punch yeah. him out. He just, like, he just casually doing, starts man? talking. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. It's really good. So Dracula, unlike other vampires, does have one other ace up his sleeve. 
He is functionally immortal even after death. And what I mean by that is that you can kill Dracula, but then he will come back in 100 years. He's just mm -hmm. that powerful. Now, partially, that's because his servant is his servant and right-hand man is literally the concept of death made <laughs> manifest, which probably goes a long way. Yeah, that helps. Now, while he is able to come back every 100 years, he doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily guaranteed he, he will. He right. does need to br be brought back via ritual, usually mm -hmm. involving some sort of virgin, virgin being sacrificed or another. Right. Or sometimes it is just like a completely cataclysmic events, like some sort of world war or something like that, can also bring him back. Uh, he could also technically come back before 100 years if the event is significant enough. And then sometimes he'll just come back because they need to fit a game in there. <laughs> right. Now, now that I've established that he comes back every 100 years, uh, Alex, the Castlevania franchise is has a very dedicated timeline that is pretty mm -hmm. immutable. Mm -hmm. uh, starting in 1094 AD and uh, going technically past Dracula's death, but we'll just set the end date at Dracula's death in 1999, his actual final death. Mm -hmm. So 1094 to 1999 AD. Right. There's at least 16 games that are canonical. Uh, Alex, do you see a problem with this? Yeah, the math doesn't quite add up 100 years. You should only be able to squeeze in like nine at most. Yeah. So the timeline was codified by Koji Igarashi, and he is on the record for saying he regrets making a timeline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone always gets on Nintendo's case about, hey, why is the Zelda timeline so messed up? This is why. Mm-hmm. It gets in the way of making video games. It does. It does. And they're going to do some really dumb things to get around <laughs> this. <laughs> And it's going to become exceedingly arbitrary as to exactly how Dracula comes back. Yeah. But that's how Dracula is set up. His, his entire thing is that he wants to murder all of humanity for reasons that are initially unknown, but will become known later uh, in Symphony we'll, of the Night. We'll get to the reasons. Oh, yes. So the third thing I want to establish is the people who are he's up against, and that is the Belmonts. The Belmonts are a set, uh, a family of Romanians who are known as being the world's greatest vampire hunters. And hunters are just supernatural creatures. Uh, they're imbued with ancient knowledge and the powers of holy relics, such as holy crosses, and a whip called the Vampire Killer that literally just causes vampires to explode. They are trained from youth to uh, basically take over the role as the primary vampire hunter in their family. Uh, usually the firstborn male, though sometimes it's it, they will substitute others out as need be. Mm -hmm. And their primary goal is to basically train for the inevitable day that Dracula shows back up so they can walk to his castle and beat him to death with a whip. <laughs> and so that's kind of like their entire thing. If it sounds like I'm being very slight on them, it's because it is. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be some twists and turns that are going to make them a little bit more interesting as we get through the games. But essentially, what it boils down to is that Dracula is hanging out in his castle, and then occasionally, every hundred years, an angry Romanian man breaks in and kills him. Yep. That's more or less what it is. One last thing before we do move on, I do want to talk about Dracula's castle. Dracula's yes, the second main character of the, the franchise. The second main character, Yes. So Dracula's castle is, first off, a nightmare in yeah. terms of its architecture. Uh, it is a living castle. When Dracula dies, it dies. It literally crumples into a lake. 
when mm. he's revived, it is rebuilt and reconfigured in ways that are different from previous generations, presumably as a defense mechanism. It is home to literally every spiritual monster <laughs> and demon you could possibly think of, which is honestly one of the things that I think is the coolest thing about Castlevania. Mm -hmm. You not only have vampires from other novels like Carmilla and whatnot, uh, or Orlocks and and all that, but you also have things like Medusas there, Minotaurs, mm -hmm. you know, Greek mythology. You have Japanese mythology in there, occasionally Middle Eastern and African mythology characters. It all makes it just like this really cool, like who's who party of like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein combined right. with the Wolfman, with the Mummy, and all that. It's super duper cool, and I absolutely love it. They all just sort of hang out and are just Dracula's minions because Dracula himself has the ability to command souls. Right. Vampires typically can't compel people to do what they want. Dracula goes further by just literally controlling your soul and being able to make you reborn. It's great. So that is the stakes that we have. And with that, I think we should start talking about the games, Alex. Yeah. So let's go ahead and start with the first ever game, Castlevania, released in 1986. So we're not going to get too much into the development history of this one. We're just going to just kind of jump into this. Some of these games we will get into okay. development history a little bit more, but don't really need to for this one. Now, this is the first game in the series starring Simon Belmont, who is kind of considered to be the titular Belmont. He's going to show up the most uh, in games such as Haunted Castle, which is an arcade game, Super mm -hmm. Castlevania IV, Castlevania Chronicles, uh, a lot of games that we're actually not going to be talking about because they literally are just retelling the story of this. Right. Just know that they exist. They're out there. Uh, Simon himself is incredibly boring. He's a yeah. blonde buff man who basically wanders into Dracula's castle one day as per his birthright and murders Dracula. That's his story. Mm -hmm. uh, it gets a little interesting later, but for this, that's all there is. Uh, which makes it kind of funny that he is like probably the first Belmont people think about, either him or right. Trevor. <laughs> so... His deal is that he's the descendant of the legendary Belmont clan. Born in 1669, he sets out to defeat Dracula after he's resurrected on Easter in 1691 by a bunch of dark occultists. He battles through the magical castle, battling Medusa, giant bats, mummies, Frankenstein's monster, and death himself before killing Dracula and sealing him away. That's the story of Castlevania. Yay. Yay. I, I really appreciate Castlevania because, like, it's... In 1986, no one was trying to make franchises of video no. games. No, they so weren't. this was very clearly some people were like, "Oh, uh, what if we made a game full of like monsters and yeah. you beat them to death with a whip, and at the end you fought Dracula?" We literally watched all of Universal's back catalog, and we went, "That would be pretty neat if somebody That'd beat be, them to death with a yeah. whip." What if What if you were not Van Helsing going through all these guys and death? Why not? Also <laughs> death. Yeah, what if you were just Van Helsing, but the serial numbers filed off? That'd be yeah. cool, right? Yeah, it's really, really nice. Y you can kind of appreciate the simplicity that's going yeah, on here. Yeah, absolutely. So before we move on from here, I, I do have like little sections that are like interesting about each game. And I want to mm. talk about something that's interesting here, because once again, this is this is the most this this um Simon's like the one who shows up the most, despite right. being the most uninteresting. Uh huh. Uh, most of the times, it's not that too particularly crazy. Castlevania Chronicles, for instance, he has maroon hair now. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to talk about Haunted Castle, the arcade game. <laughs> uh, 
Haunted Castle is cool because it starts with Simon about to marry his fiancée, Selena, when Dracula just shows up at the wedding and kidnaps her. But not before summoning a lightning bolt that blows up the cross on top of the church, just being very dramatic. Rad. It also wasn't supposed to be a Castlevania game. It's uh, supposed to be something else entirely, but its development was so messed up that the head of Konami got the people working on another game called Hot Chase to show up and reboot the entire game. (laughs) (laughs) It is known for being incredibly, incredibly terrible and punishingly difficult. Mm. Uh, Don't recommend it. I've played through the entire thing. It's bad. I was going to say, even the premise sounds like very ghosts and ghouls. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is very, it might as well be Ghost to Ghost in many ways. <laughs> uh, arcade games were so simpler back then. They, they were. Um, it should also we, be mentioned. We want your money, so we're going to kill you a lot to make you put more quarters in. Mm-hmm. That's the premise. Yep. Yep. So Simon also shows up in the weird Nintendo compilation show cartoon called uh, Captain N. Yeah. Where. <laughs> A normal boy with a zapper and a Nintendo controller goes into the video game world and has to team up with people such as a bad version of Mega Man um, and Simon Belmont in order to defeat, you know, people like King Hippo, the boxer from (laughs) Punch-Out. Simon there is basically known as being a dumb doofus pretty boy who has like a chiseled jaw and just like is a real jerk who wants to show up Captain N at every turn. And is for some reason dressed like he's trying to ascend a mountain for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a real he's he's a real tool in that. And but he supposedly has like a heart of gold. Yeah, he's, which to be honest might make him the most interesting interpretation of the character. Because mm-hmm. he actually has an interpretation, if nothing yeah. else. But yeah, he, he's he's really really dumb in that he basically just exists to bait be like no the princess should love me and not you random jerk with the the nes zapper (laughs) which fair fair i guess sure so that's simon now that game was incredibly successful it got ported everywhere um has a weird sort of quasi remake called vampire killer that was released on uh japanese pcs and it was a very clear success for Konami, so they immediately made a follow-up the following year called Castlevania II Simon's Quest, uh, starring, once again, Simon Belmont. Right. This game is shockingly important. Yeah. Which is too bad that it's bad. It's also bad, yeah. <laughs> so, it's important for two reasons. The first is that it is the first Castlevania game to get its own Tiger's Electronics game. Mm. Which... Mm. I, I thought I find that cool. That that's how you know when you're successful when Tiger Electronics wants to license you for their own terrible LCD terrible game. The second is that it, in a very Zelda two like fashion, says, "Well, we did something cool with the first game, but what if we did something entirely different for the second? Right. Which now, ag- again is a thing I appreciate about that time period where you could just be like, like the idea that." That a sequel has to be similar at all to the first game doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely not. It, it's just more like the designers of the game went, well, maybe it'd be fun if we did this. And they just right. did it. And then they vaguely slapped on the branding from another project on there and went, there we go. We can sell this. Hell yeah. And that's exactly what they did with this. This game, instead of being a straight up platformer, is... Like, it's still like a side-scrolling platformer where you use a whip mm. or whatnot, but now it has a day-night system, 
it's more exploration focused. You go from town to town, like mm. getting hints and buying items. And there's even like a leveling up system that makes you stronger as so you defeat more and more enemies. It's all incredibly rudimentary. And if you play it nowadays, it doesn't seem like anything remotely special. Right. But when we get to Symphony of the Night, they <laughs> draw heavily on this game for yeah, good reason. Are. So this game takes place seven years after the original game. Uh, it begins with Simon slowly being ravaged by a weird wasting disease. Like the wounds mm -hmm. he suffered from Dracula just never healed. It's really strange. But one day, a mysterious woman shows up and tells him he has Dracula's curse. And he can only get rid of it if he gathers the six pieces of Dracula's remains. His heart. His fang. His rib. His eye. And his fang. And for some reason, his ring. Which I think I might have said twice. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Gather them all up, go to his castle, and burn them. This woman then disappears. You might think she's like an evil spirit or something like that. Nope, she's just a woman who showed up. It's okay. just like, I got the information. Later. Someone's got to do the exposition. Somebody's have to. So, also, Dracula's minions have now just straight up started roaming the lands again, and like pestilence mm. is setting in, and people are like, oh, this must be Simon's fault. It must be the Belmont's fault. This is the first game that also establishes that the people of Wallachia are very fearful and superstitious of the mm. Belmonts and their supposedly magical powers. Right. They're like, these guys are strong. We need to run them out of town. <laughs> uh, something that's going to come up multiple times throughout the series. Mm -hmm. They are feared until they are needed. So Simon goes and from town to town in search of these remains and quickly finds the citizens unhelpful and distrusting of them in the U.S. version. <laughs> Uh, they literally straight up lie to you, and that's used as like, oh no, it's because they're under Dracula's influence. No, they just, for some reason, decided that they were going to give you wrong hints. The Japanese version, they're more <laughs> straight up. Uh, but he eventually does gather all of the remains, and he goes to Dracula's castle and burns them. Unfortunately, this somehow causes Dracula to get revived. Oh. Which, you know, Simon then just murders Dracula. Right, it's like, okay, guess, okay. He's like, did it once, do it again. Yeah, I could do it again. And with that, he actually breaks Dracula's curse and afterwards actually gives him a proper burial, which is nice of him. Yeah. Yeah, and depending on how quickly you beat the game, either Simon will live or he'll succumb to the curse. Uh, hmm. Canonically, he lives. That's how that works. So that's Castlevania 2. Uh, one interesting thing I want to point out in this is that this game mm. has the first appearance of Carmilla. Hmm. Uh, Carmilla is a reoccurring character in here, uh, usually depicted as a beautiful woman on top of a flaming skull that attacks <laughs> the player. Right. Uh, and usually accompanied by a servant by the name of Laura, who's like basically like a martial arts master. Mm. Now, Carmilla is known for a piercing beauty and ruthlessness. Uh, in this game, she just appears as a giant mask that cries blood, but she is based upon the character of the same name for the 1873 novel that's also titled Carmilla by Irish writer Joseph Sheridan La Fanu. Uh, interesting, the story basically tells the story about how she seduces a a noble woman uh, who's like like 17 or so, and something that she does repeatedly over and over uh, in order to drain their life force. Eventually okay. discovered and murdered. Uh, considered to be one of the like founding uh, like gothic like novels and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty cool, and also predates uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula by about 23 years, so that's kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah. So, great game. Well, that game's not great, but, you know, yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. <laughs> Interesting game. Interesting game. So that leads us to our third game. Castlevania 3 Dracula's Curse, released in 1989. This game is the first game where we don't play as Simon. Yeah. We're now playing as a guy by the name of Trevor C. Belmont. Now, this game is super important. One, because it's incredibly good, and it's going to establish mm-hmm. some tropes that are going to be carried forward from this game. The second is that it's going to establish a ton of lore. Everything yeah. from Dracula's son, Alucard, to how the Belmonts have magical powers later. And it also has a ghost pirate, which that's cool. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. Uh, this game is going to have a really big impression on Koji Igarashi. Mm-hmm. And elements from this are going to be brought forward in various bits of his titles uh, going in the Castlevania series going forward. So this is notable in that it actually is a prequel uh, taking place in the year 1476, which oddly enough coincides with Vlad Tep's third and final reign. Like mm. He dies at the end of 76, early 77. Nobody's really sure when. Right. And it tells the story of the Belmonts, who are outcasts in society and, and have long been exiled from the ancestral home of Wallachia. But they're allowed to come back by the Pope on the condition that they kill Dracula and stop him from spreading his forces all over Europe. Like the Pope sends a team right. in to, stop, to deal with them, a crack team, and they get absolutely messed up. <laughs> and so he's like, ah, shit, Belmonts, okay. get in there. So good on the developers for honing in on that mistrust of the Belmonts element. That is mm-hmm. like probably the most interesting aspect of the the family's like part in these games it is is, is that they are these viewed as a necessary evil mm-hmm. but like one step away from the monsters they're hunting by exactly. the ignorant masses yeah because they dabble in mysticism and on like the occult on a certain level as well because that's they fight fire with fire and so people mm-hmm. are like oh you're Ooh, weird you yeah. need to get out of here we don't like the fire we hate fire, it turns out, unless we're burning heretics, in which case we like the fire. <laughs> like the fire a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it gives the Belmonts a sense of nuance that is otherwise completely missing from this series. Mm-hmm. Because even as these games get bore story and the Belmonts actually say words, it literally just goes back, comes down to, like, we're heroes and we're, we're going to stop Dracula. Right. Barely any pathos. It's They're very boring. Yeah. So, Trevor immediately shows up, starts fighting his way to Dracula's castle, and along the way, he ends up running into three characters who all end up helping him out. These characters, in order from least important to most important, <laughs> start with Grant Dynasty, spelled exactly as it sounds. Grant Dynasty is a thief in the Japanese version who's turned into a monster by Dracula. Freed by Trevor, he promises to help him. He's easily the most forgotten, mostly, but he's very interesting in the English version because in the English version, he is a pirate who's turned into a ghost by Dracula. Uh, he's a pirate also in the famously landlocked uh, country of Wallachia. Right, yeah, well, <laughs> so you know, it's nice to have dreams. It's nice to have dreams. <laughs> but hey, you know, uh, he's very, very much forgotten, even mm. when... Um, they do like spiritual successors to Castlevania three in their own right. little ways. Uh, Grant usually ends up getting cut out one way or another. Uh, Including in the Netflix anime. The Netflix anime where he was excluded because, quote, his name is stupid and, pi- and pirates <laughs> don't make sense. 
which not wrong. I think I think they reference him in the form of like a town name at one point. I believe they do. Yes. And that's that's all he gets. That's all he gets. Poor Grant. Poor Grant. Uh, second character that we are introduced to is Sypha Belnades. Sypha is a yeah. man who comes from a family of witches. He was a part of a secret team sent by the Eastern Orthodox Church to stop Dracula. Eastern Orthodox Church, of course, had a schism with the Western Orthodox Church, or what we call the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, so they're, they're basically just the Catholics of the East who just are angry at the Pope. Right. A lot more nuanced nowadays, don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, she gets sent in, they all failed and are turned into statues, all that are broken except for Cyphus. After Trevor defeats the Cyclops, he manages to free Cypha, uh, who agrees to help. He possesses incredibly powerful elemental magic, and at the end of the game, in true Sam Aaron fashion, is revealed to be a beautiful woman with long blonde <laughs> hair after you beat the game. Uh, she ends up marrying Trevor and gives the Belmont's magical powers uh, via their descendants. That's how they explain why they're able to do weird magical stuff later. Right. Which it's also like, okay, wait, how are they doing Dracula fighting before? And I guess the answer is just holy artifacts. Yeah, they just had holy artifacts that were just blessed. Um, but now the, they can make like cross bonds out of their body energy. Yeah, or like use magical books to imbue their like sub weapons with like right. stuff so they can do things like do like a crazy ice punch. Right. Or summon the shield from Gradius. <laughs> so, yeah, she ends up marrying Trevor. It's great. Um, she is one of the best parts about the Netflix series, in my it's opinion. It's true. Uh, Castlevania Judgment, a game that we're going to get to eventually, also establishes that Grant apparently was in love with her and was really upset when she married Trevor and refused to see him for three years. So, poor Grant. Poor Grant. Constantly being shit on. <laughs> Finally, the most important is Alucard. Yeah. The also boy. Known, the boy. Also known as Adrian Fahrenheit Tepish. He is a Damphir, or a half vampire, half human. Damphirs are basically vampires without the weakness, so they love mm. garlic bread and sunny days, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can basically do things like compel and, you know, transform to, like, mist and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he cannot abide by his father's evil acts, mostly due to his love of humanity, and as such, teams up with Trevor to stop him. Uh, that being said, after Dracula is defeated, Alucard see- decides to seal himself away forever, unable to bear with the guilt of killing his father. Uh, interestingly enough, in this game, he's actually not established to be a Damphir. Mm. Uh, rather, he is supposedly a full vampire that, when he was a little child, was turned into a vampire by his father. Because, once again, they're mm-hmm. still hemming pretty closely to uh, Vlad the Impaler being Dracula, and this was right. around the time of his reign. They're going to change this dramatically, yeah. eventually. And they will establish that Alucard is half-vampire, half-human later. So, long story short, they defeat Dracula. The end. The end. Uh, some interesting things about this, just to talk a little bit more about Alucard. Alucard is a very common name for either the son of Dracula or Dracula himself, depending on the piece of media, such as Helsing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, the first instance of Alucard is actually from the 1943 film by Universal, Son of Dracula, a <laughs> film that is the third in Universal's Dracula series. Now, in the film, a Count Alucard is invited to the United States by a New Orleans Harris who proceeds to do Dracula stuff, including actually <laughs> being Dracula. 
Like, they literally look at Alucard's name and go, what if we flipped it around? And he went, oh, shit, he's Dracula. Oh, my God. The, whoever wrote that is so lucky Alucard sounds cool. He really is, right? It just somehow works. It just <laughs> happens to work. And, man, they're lucky it works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It, it should also be noted that this is not going to be the first time that somebody goes, what if we flip Alucard around? Oh, no. No. Batman does this at one point. <laughs> so one last thing I do want to point out is that in North America, this game was localized to remove a lot of religious references, mm. um, you know, stuff like crosses and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, since Trevor Belmont's weapons are all imbu- imbued with holy power or whatnot, he literally throws a cross. Right. Uh, they wanted to change that up to be like, oh, he has a powerful boomerang and stuff like that. <laughs> But they also had to explain why he has all these magical artifacts. And right. apparently he was given to him by somebody called the Poltergeist King. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Poltergeist King actually shows up in Captain N. He just looks like a king. Oh. It's actually very disappointing. Yeah, that, that could have been much cooler. It could have been, but no. So yeah, that is Castlevania 3. A, a really cool game. Yeah. Really love it. Really Very love that cool. game. So with this, Castlevania is now like an established franchise. And with any established franchise, it's obviously going to get weird spinoffs all over the place. And that's going to start almost immediately in 1989 with the Game Boy. Mm. Where we're going to get a little game called Castlevania The Adventure. A terrible video game. <laughs> Castlevania The Adventure stars the protagonist Christopher Belmont. Now, I have here why it's important. I have it just colon, it isn't. Fair enough. Yes. (laughs) Um, We're going to go over it anyways, but it's going to be very, very brief. It takes place in 1576, and it has Christopher Belmont going to kill Dracula. He does, and he turns into mist. Cool. Uh, Indeed. Now, I wanted to point this game out for two reasons. Uh, One is that it does actually get remade at one point for the Wii. Uh, is Castlevania, hmm. The Adventure Rebirth, released in 2009. An actual, very good, classic-style Castlevania game. Huh. A lot of the Rebirth games around that time, Grady's Rebirth, Koch Rebirth, were all mm-hmm. very good send-ups to the original series, and right. I'm s- sad they stopped after that. Yeah. But, um, we, man, the Wii around that time was so great. Everyone was just like, let's just revive our classic franchises yeah. and just throw them yeah, on just there. just put them on there. Why not? Want a new Bionic Commando? Sure, why not? Yeah. Here's a new Mega Man. It was so cool. Another thing I want to mention is that this game was more known for its confusion in the canon rather than anything else. Mm. And once again, it's mostly due to Western localization. Uh, actually, both actually, it's both Western and Japan I have written down here. In Western mm. regions, it was heavily implied this game actually starred Simon. But in Japan, it was heavily implied that it was Trevor doing all these adventures. And huh. it's mostly because Trevor's middle name is Christopher. <laughs> Oh, right. Mm-hmm. The Japanese instruction booklet also implies this is Belmont's first battle against Dracula. Uh, noting that this fight was from before Dracula was even a vampire, but rather was a demon-worshipping magician who was <laughs> going hard on the being evil part in order to get eternal life from the Demon King himself. The Demon King being Satan. Right. Yeah, eventually Ego was like, no, Christopher is just in the middle. It's right. fine. It's He's- fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's fine. So... This game was actually one of the most successful Castlevania games ever. It sold two and a half million <laughs> copies. So of course they made a sequel. The Game Boy was a very popular platform. 
It was, and there was, and the first couple of years there wasn't really a whole there lot. Wasn't, but man, it, there was Tetris, right? There was Tetris, and there was Super Mario Land. There, that you was go. enough. It was enough. So, Castlevania II: Belmont's Revenge, released Ooh. in 1991, also starring Christopher Belmont. I have here why it's important. Colon, it also isn't. <laughs> It actually is a little bit more important because it takes place 15 years after Castlevania, the adventure. Mm. Christopher's son is about to come of age and become a full-fledged vampire hunter. However, it turns out Dracula isn't dead. He just turned to mist, and I guess Christopher forgot vampires could do that. <laughs> so he comes back and possesses his son, Soleil Belmont. He then raises four castles out of the countryside that Christopher must travel to and destroy in order to free his son and kill Dracula. Uh, the fiend after are like clouds, plants, rocks, crystals, and you just like what from the start. It's very Mega Man like. Yeah. Uh, it ends with yeah, it ends up with him beating up his son and killing Dracula. The end. So with that, the next game in the series is actually Rondo of Blood, but we're gonna just skip past that really quickly okay. and move to the Sega Genesis. Ah uh, yes. We talk about a really cool game. Castlevania Bloodlines. Released in 1994. This game's protagonists are John Morrison and Eric Lacard. So first game that doesn't have a Belmont. Yeah. On top of that, it's loosely based on the novel Bram Stoker's Dracula. In case you wonder why I brought that up earlier, here we are. Okay. <laughs> so essentially how this game goes is that the events of Dracula, the 1897 novel, happens. So in that, as you recall, there was a Texan. That Texan's name was Quincy Morris, and his whole thing is that he's a young, up-and-coming guy who wants to prove he's actually as brave and Texan as he is. Mm -hmm. Like, he carries around a Bowie knife, but he admits that he's kind of a wuss. <laughs> Anyways, he dies in the novel, but apparently not before somehow having a son back in Texas, despite the fact that the woman he was in love with was, you know, somebody else's fiancé. Right. It's never explained how he had a kid. Anyways... They explain that the Morrises are depicted as being an offshoot of the Belmont clan who just happens to get the legendary whip, the vampire killer, after the Belmonts decide to, like, give it up for reasons mm. that we'll get into later. Now, the Morrises, though, forsake their duties of hunting vampires, moving from England to Texas to become successful gold prospectors in the 19th century. You know what? I like this premise. It's an interesting premise. This, this is fun. It's fun, although it's a little dubious that they're gold prospectors, given that the Texas State Historical Association notes that, quote, gold <laughs> mining has not been extensive in Texas, end quote. Well, I mean, they were in Wallachia. They didn't, they just heard, they just heard West and gold. Mm -hmm. And we're like, all right, I guess we'll go over to the new world and mine for gold. Yeah, exactly. And then exactly. they got to Texas and everyone was like, what, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? It's also possible this could be a Dracula lie as well. Oh, because, yeah, sure. Because the Texas State Historical Association was established in 1897. Ooh. The same year as a novel. Is this a coincidence? Yes, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the case. After his father died, John Morris was taught magic by a Native American man. And okay. Was, yeah, of course he was. <laughs> and was told about his vampire hunting roots and taught how to use a vampire killer. And he became a successful vampire hunter. Now, Eric, on the other hand, is a Spaniard who apparently is part of a family that's also an offshoot of the Belmont clan. They just got around, I guess. Yeah, sure, you know. I mean, when you go back all the way to... Like, the Belmonts have existed since literally the 11th century. Right. 
So, you know. Yeah, the, the bloodline's going to spread out. We're all Belmonts, it turns out. Most likely. Just statistically likely. speaking. Most of our lineages just stopped vampire hunting. Yeah, exactly. They, they exactly. went somewhere there weren't vampires. Honestly, that's a good inspirational poster is that you could you could kill Dracula if you really wanted to. Yeah. We're all Dracula killers in our hearts. True. So he was trained to use a holy weapon known as the Alucard Spear, which is exactly what you think it is. It's a spear <laughs> that belonged to Alucard. Fair enough. But he nearly gave it up to be a sculptor instead. He was kind of a lazy boy. Yeah. However, when a random old man showed up to tell him that Dracula's niece, Elizabeth Bartley, showed up and is trying to provide Dracula... And also that said Elizabeth just sucked the blood of his fiance Lucy and trapped her soul in Dracula's castle. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, he decided to take up the spear and team up with the John Morris to stop her in 1917. So yeah, this game takes place during World War One. Hmm. And to be fair, they actually do a pretty good job of using that. So mm-hmm. the game literally starts with you going to the destroyed ruins of Castle Dracula. Fighting your way through and confronting Elizabeth, who then runs away, but not before summoning like a skeleton to fight you or something like that. I think it's actually oh. a knight. Yeah. Um, and then you just start traveling over Europe. Like you go to Atlantis, you fight through a munitions factory, you fight on top of the Tower of Pisa. <laughs> like it's really, really neat. This sure is a Genesis game. It sure is. <laughs> like all these things just are the most prototypical Genesis things to do. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see the graphics in my head. Yep. <laughs> you could you could hear the FM synth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it all it eventually ends with them getting to Elizabeth's castle in England. They kill her, but not before she revives Dracula, who's subsequently killed as well. Oh, you know, pretty pretty neat. Now, a few interesting things about this is that Elizabeth Bartley herself is the vampire niece of Count Dracula, who three hundred years ago learned black magic from the magician. Dolce Dezenis? Now, she was known for a captivating beauty, and in order to keep it, murdered a bunch of virgins as a sacrifice to ensure her beauty. Though she was eventually captured by a bunch of Austrians and put into a deep sleep. Now, Dolce, who somehow survived, would eventually revive her from her slumber, and in her revenge, Elizabeth would murder Archduke Franz Ferdinand and start oh World my War God. I. Wow. <laughs> it's stupid. Wow. It's stupid. Now, Elizabeth Bartloy is a real person. Uh, she mm. was a Hungarian noblewoman with a powerful political influence in Central Europe. Like, her family was very politically influential. Mm-hmm. But between 1590 and 1610, she was accused of the systematic torture and murder of several women in an apparently, well, ritualistic manner. Mm-hmm. She was found guilty, and as was the what you did with noble people then, just put in a castle for the rest of her life. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, nowadays, there's some debate as to whether or not she actually did this, or this was a political hit job meant to eliminate her family's influence in a region. Mm. She was a influential Hungarian, and right. this is around the time the height of the power of the Habsburgs. Uh-huh. So it's, once again, kind of like calling, you know, Vlad III a right. baby killer. You just mm-hmm. sort of did that. Uh, regardless, popular culture has recast her in the role of a vampire. The other interesting thing is that this is the first game that featured the music of Michiru Yamane. Yamane mm. is going to be the main composer for Castlevania, pretty much starting with Sympathy of the Night. Mm. She is incredibly influential. It's going to be like one of the three amigos of the Castlevania series. Right. Uh, do you want to say that her music is great? 
I, yep. it, it will be kind of people who kind of know a little bit more about her personal life will know that uh, there's a little bit of a she's a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> mm. She believes in QAnon. So uh, I'm going to throw that out there that I like her music. I don't like her. Fair enough. And we'll move on. So, yeah, with that, that game was super cool. I, I love that game an awful lot. Um, I've mm. only grown to appreciate it more and more. That game's going to get a sequel eventually, and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> because now we got to move on to maybe the... If Symphony of Night is not the most influential game within the series... Right. Uh, then the one that is going to lead to Symphony of Night right. is the most influential it, series. Yeah, Symphony is definitely the most influential, but Rondo set it up. Mm-hmm. So Dracula X, Rondo of Blood, released in 1993 for the TurboGrafx-16 CD. Well, not in the United States, though, so it would be the PC Engine CD, but don't worry about mm. that. The protagonist of this one is a one Richter Belmont. My favorite Belmont. Mostly just because of pretty how good. He, Yeah, mostly just because of how he looks. Uh, mm -hmm. Once again, he's a, he's a Belmont. He's boring. <laughs> so the reason why this game matters is that being on a CD-based platform... Probably the first Castlevania game to have a heavier story overall, like with cutscenes that are voiced mm -hmm. and everything. Right. Uh, uses a lot of like, well, the call them anime cutscenes would be strong. It's more like mm -hmm. giant anime sprites that occasionally have their mouths move. Right. But yeah, it's talking same, portraits. Yeah, exactly. It also has a graphical style. Um, very, very cool looking sprites that are going to become the standard for how Castlevania games, 2D Castlevania games, are going mm -hmm. to look going forward. Uh, the sprites from Rondo of Blood, the actual you know, character, like characters and enemies, are going to be recycled so many times mm -hmm. for decades. Decades! <laughs> and granted, it's because they look really good, but also, yep. boy, they are not going to stop. Yep. So, the story of this game takes place in 1792. Dracula is revived after a dark priest named Shaft and his minions. Sure. They kidnap a young virgin and sacrifice her in Dracula's castle. Upon his revival, Dracula and his minions set out to attack the surrounding countryside. But he also immediately orders them to kidnap certain key people, including Richter's girlfriend, Annette. Which he purposely does because he's like, those damn Belmonts. Yep, They're got it. Here. Let's let's deal with this one early. Yeah, I we've had three of them so far. Technically more. Technically more. We gotta nip this in the bud. He also um has him kidnap other people of like magical importance that mm. we'll get to in a bit. And Richter, hearing about this in a really cool cutscene, gets out of his definitely not 18th century like business suit, <laughs> gets into his fighting gear, and then takes off on um on a carriage towards the nearest town that's on fire. <laughs> now, on his way, he immediately gets accosted by death in a cool cutscene. Like, he just flies at you, laughs, shoots a flaming skull at you that you knock, like, Belmont knocks away, haunts him, and then flies off. It's like, next time I fight you, it's gonna be serious. <laughs> Alex, this game is so cool. It's cool. It's a good setup. It's an incredibly good setup. So Richter makes his way through a flaming town, rescues various villagers, including a young woman by the name of Maria Renard. Maria is a precocious 12-year-old with magical powers. Magical powers that are accidentally unlocked by the priest's shaft, because he's like, Ooh, we could use her for Dracula. And instead she's like, I'm going to use him to murder you. 
after being rescued by Richter, he's like laughed off. He's like, ah, you, yeah, you are too precocious. But it turns out her magical powers allow her to summon like, um, you know, the the four animals of the zodiac. Uh, oh, yeah, and allow them to do a bidding. Uh, so he sees that as like, oh no, actually, you will be helpful. Yes, come along. <laughs> I'm gonna put you in my equipment bag. Pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, so in this game, you can play as either Richter or Maria. Maria being easy mode by far. <laughs> and you, they make the. Do you want to fight with a whip or the gods? <laughs> you want to throw doves at people and it hurts them bad? <laughs> you absolutely can. I mean, this little girl is incredibly capable. She like double yeah. jumps. She has a slide. Like she's half the size of Richter, so enemies having trouble hitting her. She's OP. It's great. They probably could have just let her take care of the whole thing, honestly. They, they probably could have, and she probably could have done it. Yep. So eventually, Richter rescues all the townspeople, including Annette. Uh, he kills Shaft, um, but not before he summons all the classic Castlevania bosses. Mm. Encounters and defeats Dracula and escapes the castle before it crumbles around him. Maria and, like, and Richter see the castle crumble, and Maria, whose parents were murdered, by the way, is adopted as an honorary Belmont. Aww. The end. It's a great game. I love it. Yeah, great. This leads us to maybe the most influential. Mm-hmm. 1997's Castlevania Sympathy of the Night for the PlayStation, whose protagonist is not going to be Richter, but rather Alucard. So this is one where we are going to talk about the development because the development mm-hmm. on this game is a little bit wild. Yeah. And incredibly important for the franchise moving forward. Exactly. We have to explain why they made this change. So, the Call of Sympathy and Night, important for Castlevania, if not video games as a whole, honestly, Mm. would be a bit of an understatement. Yeah. Its release would mark a turning point in what a Castlevania game was, from a linear side-scrolling game to a more exploration-based, story-heavy series. It's also important because it codifies a trio of people as the heart and soul of what this series was going to be going forward. So to do that, let's talk about how this game came, came about. Now, normally when like a major change like this happens, it's because of bad sales or drama or something similar happens. But mm. here, Alex, it's actually more boring and relatable. Mm-hmm. The team, which was mostly the team that worked on Rondo, didn't want to make another old school Castlevania game. Yeah. So this team was led by Toro Hagihara. Now, Hagihara was the director of Rondo, mm-hmm. and he's going to be the director of this game. And he was like, let's just do something different. Uh, and he, he looked around for inspiration. And him and his team really loved one game in particular. The 1994 game Super Metroid. Mm. Super Metroid, a game that's about exploring a dark and foreboding planet, getting items to power yourself up and using those to go re-explore old areas you've already been to in order to make yourself stronger and stronger mm-hmm. uh, was a game that was incredibly influential for its time, yeah. but still is influential to this day and was influential on the development of Symphony of the Night. They wanted to make a game that was just like that. Or maybe more accurately to say, they wanted to make a game in the spirit of it, but put their own spin on it. Right. And in order to do that, they looked even further back in Castlevania's history and took inspiration from Castlevania 2. The leveling system, specifically the ability to make yourself stronger if you wish to put the time into it, felt like it was perfect to marry to the Super Metroid elements they wished to put in the game. Like, they saw how Castlevania games were traditionally very difficult games and were like, well, what if we gave a way for players to have it be easier if they wanted to put the time into it? And this Mm -hmm. was one way to do it. 
this is perfect. Mm-hmm. This it is such a smart system to put in there. These action RPG elements, right? That unsurprisingly, they're gonna do so many more of these games going forward. <laughs> Well, it also works really well with the exploration element because especially the first time you're playing it, you're not you're going to do a lot of backtracking often without a clear destination or purpose. Mm-hmm. And with, you know, by default that can turn into a lot of just sort of wasted time and padding around the same places, but when you turn it into a progression system, it means that you're not wasting the time that you're spending doing that without a, as clear a purpose. Mhm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, it gives you something to do. And it also show, helps the show progression. Like mm-hmm. an area that might be very tough at the start of the game, you come back through to do a little bit of extra exploration. All of a sudden, you're defeating the enemy super quickly. It right. gives you that sense of accomplishment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an absolutely perfect system. And it's no surprise that a ton of games are going to copy this, essentially, right. uh, for inspiration for their own games as well. Now, with this idea, development began on the game. Uh, Michiro Yamane came back as the main composer to produce, honestly, some of the best music in the series. Mm-hmm. So she's the first of these three amigos that we were talking about earlier. The second, a new character artist was hired, Ayami Kojima. She was responsible for overhauling Alucard's design and really infusing a gothic European feel into everything. I'll post the, the gossip concept art from uh, Castlevania is part of the description or mm-hmm. Cynthia Knight to give you an idea of what it looks like. But basically think like very pale, like slender people who look very elegant and regal, mm-hmm. uh, but also like have like a driven purpose in their eyes. Like she makes very evocative and expressive characters. Yes. Uh, absolutely amazing artwork. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Mm hmm. And yeah, it's clear from that it like inspired like she overhauled Alucard's design to a design that I think is excellent. I love yes. the way Alucard looks in this. Absolutely. Alucard. Uh, the 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 other thing I really like is that like so you you've got a number of games with artists like this. For instance, uh, a classic example is um, Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. The earlier games that have this very evocative and very elegant art style um, that does not really translate into the game itself Mm -hmm. but in castlevania's case it very much does yeah like the artwork in the game looks very in line with what the concept art is showing you it does yeah it matches up much much closer like they don't have to have another artist to go over that and like be like Man, those Amaro, Amaro drawings are really, really uh-huh. good, but uh, those are not going to work as a sprite. We can't make a pixel art out of that. Yeah, this is impossible. Yeah, no, it, like, what Yamane, Yamane, not Yamane, uh, what Kojima puts on on paper, it translates so seamlessly to how the game looks. It mm-hmm. it gives it a, a, so it looks great. Yes. It looks so, so good. And it's it's one of those things where so part of the development I don't know if we'll get to this but the, this is was the first Castlevania game for the PlayStation One mm-hmm. and for a while Konami was like oh we should do something really like you know 3D and graphically impressive to harness the power mm-hmm. and th- this team was like no it's going to be 2D but we'll harness that power oh yeah oh yeah and they most certainly did they most certainly did. It's actually funny that you brought it up because they are going to do a 3D Castlevania on the Nintendo yeah. 64, uh, released two years after this. We're not going to get to it this episode, but mm-hmm. 
it's really funny looking at that game, the reaction to it, and the reaction to uh, Symphony of the Night, because right. to get a little ahead of ourselves, Symphony of the Night is not a successful game in terms mm. of sales. Uh, mm-hmm. Some figures I've seen is that it sold roughly about 120,000 copies internationally. Wow. With no Japanese numbers to back that up. Um, mm-hmm. So not exactly the most successful project out there. Right. And the critical reception at the time was like, if you played it, you loved it. But a lot of people were actually like kind of poo-pooed the game. Uh. There's a lot of people who go like, man, look at what the Nintendo 64 is doing with Castlevania. This is the future. Look at the PlayStation. Oh, it's so <laughs> old. Look at look at Sympathy of the Night. Look how that looks. How Castlevania 64 revitalized an aging franchise. Yeah, man. may as well, right? Castlevania is just a franchise that resists the trend of progress at every turn. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is. Yeah, it's it's so hilarious, like watching like like looking at old mm. like Nintendo focused trade magazines and see them being like, right. so it looks terrible. Look at the Castlevania 64, it's great. It's like, oh, you oh, you don't know. You, you don't, don't know. know. <laughs> so you have these two people. And then you have the third person, or what seems like it should be the third person, Toru Hagihara, the director, mm-hmm. or the director until halfway through development when he gets promoted, and now the game has no director. Uh-oh. Oh, whoops. <laughs> God, I love Japanese video game companies so much. Yeah, you would think they would wait until he was done with this, but nope. Nope. <laughs> so this forces them to promote somebody else to be assistant director and help finish the game. Hmm. This person is probably the most consequential of the three, mm-hmm. and that's Koji Igarashi. Koji Igarashi, or as he's known by his nickname, Iga, and that's how we're going to just refer to him going forward, right. is the heart and soul of this series, and in many ways, its greatest advocate. He's also called the father of Castlevania, a fact that is hilariously not true. <laughs> it has been going for like a decade before he got here. <laughs> Literally over a decade. <laughs> Now, much like how Kenji Inafune is referred to that for Mega Man, uh, right. Iga has been on the record being like, I'm not, no. Although right. he's, he's sort of stopped recently, but mostly because I think he's just tired of correcting people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but at least Inafune was like on involved in the first Mega Man game. Yeah, he was one of the character artists. Yeah, like he at least has a claim. <laughs> I don't know if Iga was even working at Konami when the first Castlevania was made. Funnily enough, no, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, born on March uh, 17th, 1968, uh, he developed an intense interest in games after playing games such as Pong and Crazy Climber. Uh, mm. This interest led him to teaching himself assembly and basic programming languages. All right. Uh, yeah, he, like, he designed amateur games all throughout college, which led to Konami actually, you know, finding out about him and actually seeking him out. Like, he mm. was, high, he was like, basically poached from college from oh, wow. like, promised a job. So when he did arrive at Konami, um, he started, uh, I, I don't know exactly when he arrived, but his first published games um, that he worked on weren't, wasn't until 1992. Mm. Uh, he was a programmer on many of those, but soon he was put on his most important project ever. The dating sim game took a mini memorial as the lead writer for some reason. <laughs> now, I, I say most important, but... Th- this isn't a joke. <laughs> I know. It should be, but it's not. 
Tokimeki Memorial is one of the most important dating simulators or visual novels out there. It's going to establish so many tropes within it. Um, mm-hmm. A kind of like progression stat-based system. Uh, the idea of dating various eligible bachelorettes and having to compete in mini games to win their affection. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tokimeki Memorial is going to be one of Konami's most successful series in Japan. And I, for more on that, I suggest looking at Tim Rogers' video about that. Mm-hmm. goes into incredible detail about that. Um, but it needs to say, he was one of the main writers on there. Hmm. And it kind of showed that Ika himself was kind of like a polymath in, in ways. Right. Uh, he, he just was successful in so many different fields. And it probably is going to explain why he's going to have a pretty quick rise to prominence in Konami. Mm-hmm. Now, writing for Tokimeki Memorial is difficult. He has to write for all these, you know, 16-year-old girls, and Mika's mm-hmm. not a 16-year-old girl. It's kind of difficult right. to write that. So he did get a female staff member to help give him some advice on how to write this mostly female cast. Uh, she was a program, I think a programmer. Uh, she worked on Rondo of Blood in some capacity, so she would help him with the writing. Ega would play Rondo and give her like some feedback, and eventually these two actually fell in love and got married. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know who she was. They're very private people from what I can tell. Uh-huh. Fair and there are multiple women worked on Rondo, but needless to say, they seem to have a very loving relationship, as we'll get into later. Nice. But now, it, it might now this might seem odd to I bring all this up, but with Tokimeki Memorial coming out and being a hit, Konami wanted to make a second game and have Iga back as a writer, which he totally did not want to do. <laughs> so his wife, uh, then girlfriend, instead encouraged him to apply for a transfer to the Soten team, which was granted. Mm. The second is that Ego, when he becomes the Castlevania guy, multiple characters in the series are going to be based directly on his wife. Oh. <laughs> Even story beats in the games are going to be based somewhat on his marriage. Oh. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, kind cute. of neat. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah. Uh, so Ego joined the team, and after Hagiharo was promoted, he was promoted to assistant director and had a large hand in finishing the game. Like, he's pretty much on the record with Hagihara as being like, not, I was the director for the second half of the game. Right, right. Yeah, and it's not disputed. Uh, after this point, he's going to become a full-on Castlevania guy, constantly advocating for new projects within the company, mm. uh, to the point that he's going to like really embody it. Like, he's going to get mm-hmm. a whip, and he's going to always have like a cowboy hat on for some reason. Hmm. <laughs> He's kind of a weirdo, but in a yeah. in a endearing way. Yeah, compared to many of the weirdos in Japanese game development, he's mm. he's one of the more likable ones. Yeah, like I compared him to Kenji Inafune in many ways, but unlike Inafune, who is gonna kind of go off the rails, uh, yeah, a little bit. Iga, maybe because he's just never was given enough power within Konami. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, never quite gets to that level, mm-hmm. which is good. And also, once yeah. again, his Kickstarter project actually delivers. But yes. We'll, we'll get to that at the very end. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the setup for Symphony of the Night. Let's go ahead and talk about the plot of it a little bit. So the, while the bulk of the game takes place in 1796, or four years after Rondo, uh, it actually starts in 1792 with Richter's final battle of Dracula. Like, it, it literally starts out with, like, mm-hmm. each, each stage in Rondo has a title card that shows up, and it shows up with the title card from the last stage of that game. Which, for American audiences, didn't really make sense because right. we never got Rondo. But right. Japanese audiences, I bet that was cool as hell. Yep. And yeah, Rector goes up and has a final battle with Dracula. 
will, of course, here do our obligatory acknowledgement that the English dub is hilarious. Yes. Yes. Dracula also but simultaneously kind of goes hard. It does. It is hard. It is. It does go hard. Yes. <laughs> the Dracula's voice actor in this is the most hammy person in the world, and he's so good. He's so he's, good. Which is when you contrast it with Richter's, who's so bad. Oh, God. Oh, man. Dracula has also gotten like a real good glow up as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Previously, Dracula usually was depicted as like kind of like a young man. Right. For some reason, Dracula now is more like an old man with long gray flowing hair and a beard. And he looks great. He looks great. It was the right move. It was the right move. So they have a big giant fight. Dracula is defeated. He yells, it cannot be. And then like a photograph is taken of the sequence, which then burns up. <laughs> We're then told that at, shortly after this, Richter completely disappeared, and Dracula's castle one day mysteriously reappeared four years later in 1796. Alucard, sensing something is wrong and sensing that there's no Belmont around, awakens and runs to Dracula's castle. Literally you know, runs. Very fast. I gotta say, the, the Belmonts seem real bad at sealing the deal the first time. Yeah, right? They yeah. keep having to make a return trip. They keep having to. Like, they'll do it the second time, mm-hmm. usually. But the first is like, it doesn't, it doesn't take. Yeah, and you, it's not like it isn't consistent that Dracula's going to mess with the same Belmont a second time, it seems yeah. like. It's like, if you defeat Dracula once, you gotta be on guard, because... Yeah, it's, it's the, you need that second time. Like, I think literally every Belmont... Um, <laughs> Yeah, because like happens to Simon, happens to Christopher. It does happen to Trevor. We haven't gone through the sequel game yet, but we will. It's going to happen okay. to him. Yep. And now it's happened to Richter. <laughs> yeah, you think at this point, it's like, okay, I got to be I got to be on a right. watch out for some Dracula shenanigans. Yep. Give it like five years and then we and, go again. And he'll be back. Maybe that's maybe that was his like downfall. He was he's like, okay, five years from now, it's going to happen. And then four right. years happened. Oops, too too soon. Like, ah, damn it. So, you know, he, uh, he being Alucard, infiltrates uh, Dracula's castle, runs into death, who's like, go away. Yeah. Listen, you are my lord's son. I won't murder you, but you need to leave. Which Alucard refuses, so Dracula literally just takes all his clothes. <laughs> yeah. So Alucard explores the castle, fighting various demons and the undead, before running into a 16-year-old Maria Renard. Uh, Maria is now all grown up, um, and she is much less precocious this time around, much more serious and determined. Mm. Uh, she's arrived at Dracula's castle in search of Richter. Um, she's like, hey, do you know, like, of Belmont? He's like, do you mean Trevor? She's like, I don't know who that is, but we're not talking <laughs> about the same people. Anyway, see ya. Anyways, Alucard soon does find Richter in the castle's underground coliseum where he immediately laughs and tells him he's the master of the castle and tries to kill him with a minotaur and a werewolf, uh, which this fails, but he teleports right. away. After this, Alucard runs to Maria again, who she has run into Richter as well, and she is convinced that he must be controlled by someone. Investigating the castle further, Alucard... I mean, oh, go ahead. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that someone be Dracula? I mean, one thing that every Castlevania protagonist <laughs> is bad at is putting two and two together. It is known that Dracula can compel people and souls. It is known this. 
but the half vampire and <laughs> and the vampire hunter just can't quite figure that one out. Yeah, the son of Dracula is like, oof, boy, don't know about this one. My father's castle that always comes back when my father is revived has come back. What could this mean? <laughs> <laughs> so Alucard falls asleep in these catacombs and has a dream of the day his human mother, Lisa, was burned to death at the stake. She was killed by her fellow humans because she loved Dracula and bore his son. Alucard, who witnessed her death, is reminded of her words to not take his anger out on the humans as their lives are full of hardship. However, in this dream, she tells him instead to murder all of humanity and hate them. Alucard is like, wait, this isn't a dream, is it? And it turns out it isn't. Rather, a succubus has put a spell on Alucard and is trying to control his thoughts. Alucard does not like this and <laughs> viciously murders her. So Alucard is very angry about all this, and he goes off to fi figure out why this is all happening. And so this establishes why Dracula hates mm -hmm. humanity. So it turns out Dracula hates humanity because at one point he fell in love with a human woman and was living out a nice, quiet, peaceful life. But then after she was murdered by those superstitious humans, he decided that they must all pay and must all be ripped from the earth. So I, I really like this retcon yeah. or expanding of his backstory. I think it's really good and just humanizes the hell out of him. It is. It's nice, simple, to the point. It works great. Mm -hmm. They're going to adapt it for the Netflix show in a way that I really like. I do, too. I think. And again, Dracula is also the main character of that show. Mm -hmm. And it's... it just it makes it work really well. It makes it work really well. Uh, in about four years, actually six years, they're going to ruin this. Yeah. So look forward to that. Can't wait. Ugh. Well, Metaphysis was a mistake. Yeah. So in a lot of ways. Ugh. 100% of that game. So, mm. Alucard runs into Maria again, who's like, yep, Richter's definitely being controlled. He's up in Dracula's quarters. Here's a pair of magic glasses. You should use them. Hint, hint. Oh. Making his way up there, he encounters Richter, and using the glasses, he can see he's being controlled by a floating orb. Upon destroying this orb, a spirit reveals himself as Richter's controller, the Dark Priest Shaft, who somehow has survived. Right after this, a new identical castle materializes above the castle they're in, except upside down, and Shaft retreats there. Richter, now injured, implores Alucard to give chase, which he does, and he goes to this inverted castle. In a really cool sequence where now you're playing through the entire castle except upside down, which works far better than you would think. Yeah, that, that's an incredible feat of level design mm -hmm. to make every pretty much every screen work upside down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. The only downside is that like the most of the... Most of the castle uses one of two songs, which is a little yeah. unfortunate, but yeah. it's great. I absolutely love the inverted castle. It's, it's such a cool little twist. Mm -hmm. So Dracula, Dracula, Alucard eventually makes his way to the center of the inverted castle where he encounters Shaft and murders him, kills his ghost. Shaft is dead forever now. Um, he also murders death at some point. Okay, good. Now, at, but unfortunately, Dracula is still resurrected. Dracula then taunts Alucard, telling him his humanity gives him weakness. 
and sitting on a giant demon throne. Like he's literally <laughs> just sitting on there, legs crossed, and his like throne has like bat wings and two giant hands and eyes and stuff. He's like, let's go. Let's fight. And they have a cool fight. Unfortunately, Dracula is defeated. But before he dies, he asks how this could be possible. And Alucard tells him that he lost his heart and soul and he can never win without them. Dracula's like, huh, it's my hubris then. Tell me, my son, what were, what were Lisa's last words? After Alucard tells him, he asks Lisa for forgiveness and bids Alucard farewell. It's a very dramatic death for something where yeah. you're like, you're going to be back in 100 years. It's not. It's... Right. Well, but it, it is kind of interesting because it's the first time Dracula has the chance to choose a different path. Mm -hmm. Like Alucard gives him Lisa's final words in the mm -hmm. hopes that it might sway him. Mm -hmm. And he does express some level of regret. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Soton has a very, has a pretty simple story. Mm hmm. But it's a story that I think works. Yeah. Yeah. So outside of Crass with Dracula, it crumbles into a lake. Richter and Maria ask Alucard what he's going to do now. And responds that it's kind of like, well, he has no place in this world. His kind doesn't belong here. So he's going to just seal himself up again. So he leaves, but not before Richter encourages Maria, who has now fallen in love with him, to go after him and convince him to stay. We don't know what happens. Although, but spoiler alert, he, he stays in the human world. It's, it happens. He's going to okay. show up later. Yeah, okay. That, but that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You don't <laughs> establish that character and then just seal him away. No, no. He, he's a little too cool to do that. Although, they are going to have an amazing amount of restraint with Alucard. Mm, yeah. That, now that I think about it, like, when they do actually bring him back as a playable character... It's actually really cool. Yeah, well, because it's it's the kind of thing where he could just break the world and solve all the problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've gotta you've gotta be restrained, or you just end up not having video games anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, totally. So it totally makes sense. Yeah, Symphony of the Night, really cool game. Established that Castlevania could also go in a different direction. Although they're not immediately going to do so at this point. Right. Uh, they are going to do another game in this style four years later. And once that game is successful, it's going to open the floodgates. But in the meantime, they're going to kind of go back to the well. And we're going to talk about one more game before we stop today. Mm -hmm. And that's a game that's actually our first game that's not in canon. And that is the 1997 Game Boy game, Castlevania Legends. The protagonist of this one is Sonia Belmont. Hmm. Yeah, our first female Belmont. Uh, and I think technically our only female Belmont, but hey. <laughs> well, there was one. Mm -hmm. At least we did it. there was one. To be fair, there are going to be more um, um, female playable characters later in the series. Right. It's, it's going to take a while, but we will get there. So Castlevania Legends is the last Game Boy Castlevania game. And its purpose is to provide an explanation as to why the Belmonts and Dracula are constantly trying to kill each other. Mm. For some reason, vampire killers wanting to kill the vampire was not Yeah, enough. I don't... That doesn't need a super deep backstory, but okay, let's it, see what they got. What they got is interesting. Mm. So taking place in 1450, so shortly, relatively shortly before the events of Castlevania III, Mm -hmm. And the earliest in the timeline so far 
It tells the story of Sonia Belmont, a woman born with the ability to sense the presence of spiritual beings raised by her grandfather, a vampire hunter. Now, when she's 17, she met a young man who was wandering the countryside. This man was Alucard, who was trying to find his father, whom he never met. They almost immediately get into a relationship. Mm. Uh, Sonia, blonde hair, 17. Alucard has a certain type. Right. Fair enough. Unfortunately, shortly after this, Sonia's home is attacked by Dragon's minions and her grandfather is killed. But not before telling her to take the whip, the vampire killer, and telling her to unleash her powers and save the world. She then goes off to attack Dracula's castle to get her revenge. She runs into Alucard, who reveals himself to be the son of Dracula, also there to stop him. She doesn't think Sonia is capable of defeating Dracula, but after Sonia beats his ass, he concedes <laughs> that she can. And he admits he's unlikely to he that he could beat Dracula anyways. He decides to leave and seal himself forever, as he can't bear to witness his father's death. Wait, how many times is he going to do that? This would be his, well, first time, but three first times time, in total. Isn't he going to do it again like 40 years later? Yep. Yeah, so this is going to be the first time. All 40 right. years later is the second time. And then after Stone, that'll be the third. Hey, you know. Yeah, sure. He likes his nappies. Yeah. Life life getting you down. Just seal yourself. Yeah, why not? That's how I handle my depression. (laughs) Close all the windows. So Mm -hmm. Sonia makes her way to Dracula, who compliments her, telling her she's the first human to get this far. Sonia tells him she got there because she has to stop all the suffering caused by his hands, which Dracula just laughs at, saying humanity got what it wished and offers her a place among his followers. She declines, and upon his defeat, he tells her he could return one day, as long as humanity exists. Sonia then escapes the crumbling castle. Sometime after this, Sonia gives birth to a child, presumably Alucard's love child, and promises to raise him to fight evil. So interesting little twist here. Oh, hey, what do you know? The Belmonts are now inextricably linked to Dracula... By another means, they are actually related by blood. That could be kind of interesting, you know. Unfortunately, go ahead. This seems foolish. Ega agrees. Because <laughs> 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 originally this was the origin point, but in two thousand and one, Ega is when is when Ega establishes his timeline. Okay. And he decides this is no longer canon, noting there are multiple interpretations of the origins of the Belmonts and Dracula. Mm-hmm. So he's like, one has to go, and he chooses this one. Right. This is mostly because he really likes Castlevania 3. Fair which, enough, yeah. Fair enough. So, yep. yeah, they drop that. Now, in the grand tradition of Belmont protagonists getting a sequel, Sonya was supposed to get a sequel herself, released for the Sega Dreamcast and developed by a joint American-Japanese team called huh. Castlevania Resurrection. Resurrection's neat. It takes place in 1666, and it was to tell the story of Sonia being reborn to help her descendant, Victor Belmont, stop Dracula. Hmm. Uh, a playable build from E3 actually got leaked roughly about a year ago. Right, okay. Yeah, um, unfortunately, though, it ended up getting canceled due to the Dreamcast very clearly about <laughs> to fail. <laughs> yeah. And the classic chestnut of a Japanese company having their American and Japanese teams just constantly fighting. And the mm-hmm. Japanese team's winning out. So Wow. Amazing. Yeah. A, a true staple of any Sega console. 
Right? <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> so yeah, that's more or less where we're sitting right now. The next games that we're going to end up talking about are the first attempt, if you, you really can't count Soten as the first attempt, mm. of modernizing Castlevania and bringing it into the new and exciting world of 3D with Castlevania for the Nintendo 64, uh, which then they're going to immediately kind of remake mm -hmm. <laughs> almost like a couple of years afterwards. Uh, and then we're going to follow that up with the rest of the Castlevania series as Iga fully takes the reins and we see his vision of what a Castlevania story will be. Spoiler alerts, it's going to result in some of the best games of the series and some of the worst stories you've ever heard. Yeah. But that's going to be for next time. Alex, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. This is, Castlevania's fun. Castlevania fun is fun. Yeah. I. It, this is one of those things where, like, man, I I want to, like, sit down and talk about all the different weird things that happened, like how Frankenstein's monster is just sort of hanging out in Dracula's castle or, mm -hmm. like, all the multiple different paths you could take through Rondo and the different things you'll end up running into. Like... There's so many cool little neat details. Like this is the series. I have one thing I had to say. It has a real attention to detail, in, like its backgrounds mm -hmm. and like what you see, like references to older games in the series. Yeah, there, there's a lot of just like environmental and implicit storytelling. Yeah, that like it's obviously hard to like really emphasize in a audio only form, but mm -hmm. man, Castlevania is just so cool. I really love really this series. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it'll be very interesting to talk about the more Soten-like experiences that are going to be coming up, because, boy, are they going to really go hard in that direction. Once again, in some ways that are going to be cool, in other ways, mostly when they actually try to tell a story around it, that are kind of bad. Yeah. Ah. But once again, that's going to be for next time. Alex, do you have any final thoughts for us? Mm -hmm. I feel like I had more to say about Universal mo Monster Movies. Do you think it's Which, weird that Frankenstein's monster is a Dracula villain? No, I honestly I could watch an entire movie about like the two those two meeting mm -hmm. and what that dynamic would look like. Right? right. That'd be that'd be really interesting, actually. Oh, so you want to watch Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein? Probably, yeah. I kind of want to watch it too because it sounds terrible. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of weird Abbott and Costello meets X, like Abbott right. and Costello meets the Mummy. It, it, they were basically paving the way for Scooby Doo. Funnily enough, they were in Scooby Doo. So yeah, yes. of course they were. <laughs> yeah, the Scooby Doo movies. Yes. Oh man, oh, I'm so bad. <laughs> Scooby-Doo is the greatest single crossover origin point of any fiction. It, it is. And like before it even became that, it literally just was animated Castlevania. Like stuff yeah. like the ghoul school. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein's mom, they, the mummy. There literally mm -hmm. is a movie that has all four of them in it. Oh, man. Yeah, they're they're the... Shaggy is probably just another offshoot descendant of the Belmonts. Give Shaggy the vampire killer. Yeah. I, was that like, is, I would watch that movie. I would watch oh that movie God, too. Oh my God, that movie would rule. Oh, it would. 
Oh, man. Well, don't worry, Alex. That's eventually going to happen. It's, of course. It that is. is a guarantee. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to watch Shaggy fire off a Grand Cross. I can't either. Oh, man. That's going to be awesome. Shaggy interacting with Alucard. <laughs> Alucard being very impressed with Shaggy's ability to eat a, a sandwich taller than him. This oh. shouldn't be possible by human standards, and yet... This must be the power of a Belmont. I'm interested in this. <laughs> oh, so good. Good reference. So, thank you. Yeah, with that, we'll be back next time as we talk about the rest of the Ega version of Castlevania. And in part three, we'll see what happens when you get Hideo Kojima involved oh, and they yeah. decide to reboot <laughs> the entire thing. Um, to be fair, it's a coin toss. It's a coin toss. And once again, getting ahead of ourselves, the idea of putting Dracula in modern day New York should be good. It should be. But as we'll see, it's not. But once again, it never is. It never is. But once again, that'll be for next time. Alex, appreciate you joining me on this journey as always. Of course. And for you, the viewer, if you like this, you should go to ftp.podbean.com and take a look at more episodes or look through for Fallen Through Potholes on your podcast service of choice. And of course, you know, leave reviews and stuff like that. Tell us how we're doing. Tell us your favorite Universal monster movie. Tell us about how you get spooked by um, the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's one of them. That's a, that's a good movie. You should watch it. Tell us how you feel about Abbott and Costello. Or don't. I don't know. Or don't. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I sort of care, but I already have my feelings on them. Anyways, take care, everybody. Take care.